Awesome, awesome. If you guys would, um, I know when she said we're not going to have a morning service on that day, I got these looks from like deer in the headlights, like no church on Sunday morning? What is going on here? Um, so nowhere in scripture does it say that we have to meet on Sunday mornings at 1030. Just wanted to throw that out there to you. Um, so uh, <laughs> um, if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, that's right. So this is going to be our final week here in the book of Ruth, been in this series, Hope in the Midst of Hopelessness. Um, now, um, I am going to ask of you uh, to do something a little different uh, today. A gold star students, gold star students, if you would, I want you to hold your place in the book of Ruth, and I want you to jump over with me. I know this is all sorts of crazy, but I need you to jump over with me to the book of Ephesians, and I want you to hold your place in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, there's something I'm going to talk about uh, something I'm going to talk about today that I want to kind of unpack a little bit here, and it's talked more extensively in the New Testament. And so before we get there, though, uh, coming to the end of this study, um, something has been reinforced in my heart and mind about God's Word and about life uh, over the last eight weeks or so, uh, is that we sometimes fail to remember that what we often think are endings are really new beginnings for our life, new seasons in which we will find ourselves. The danger, though, in these seasons of life is that we look at our situation and our circumstances and we think it's all over now. Oh, there it goes. It's completely gone. But church, I want to remind us this morning, and I hope that you will see through this, this sermon today, is that God is not done with each and every one of us. It's not over. We're still breathing here on this earth. And because of that, that means that God's work in and through us is not complete. You are not completed and will not be in a place of perfection until you are gone and you are standing in the presence of of Christ. And so church, please know that God's not done. God is not done. I want us to think for just a moment though, for just a moment about the disciples. I want us, I want us to, to fast forward in scripture to the place in which Jesus found himself hanging on the cross. You know from scripture that there were not many disciples that made their way there. But I want to think for just a moment, what would, it, what would have been going through the disciples' minds when Jesus hung on that cross and he said, it is finished? Think with me for just a moment. It is finished. I can almost guarantee that they had thoughts of there's no more hope. Christ is gone. We even see it in Scripture if we continue to read. Some of the disciples went back within a three-day period to their old life. And they began to do the things that they used to do. They went right back to their old professions. They're like, ah, we're done with this following Jesus stuff. We're going to go back to fishing. Right? You see it in Scripture that people walked away. It was almost as if for them to say in their actions that there was no hope anymore. It was gone because Christ said, it is finished. But little did they know. Little did they know in that moment of time that that one itty-bitty statement was the opening of a brand new chapter of hope. A brand new chapter of hope. And so is with the story of Ruth. We see a picture here at the very end of this passage of Scripture of hope. A future promise 
The book of Ruth reminds us that even when we think emptiness will be the end of our story, or when dark days will close in and it will seem to never end, our story is being rewritten by a faithful redeemer. There is something significant and undeniable about the story of Ruth. It's that there's a beautiful picture here of a redeemer. You know, Jesus was sent to the cross and he made a transaction. We talked about this last week. He took off his sandal and he said, here's my payment. Let me make the purchase. He took it off. He went to the cross and he paid the price for our redemption and he gave us new life. Christ bought us. But Christ also brought us into a right relationship with the Father. You know, Paul talks about in the book of Romans chapter 5, a book uh, and a chapter that I encourage every single believer to go back and read. Read through the book of Romans. You have 11 chapters uh, of what it means uh, to unpack theology, and then you have the last five chapters of what it means to live a biblical life. And so go back and read the book of Romans, but today I want you to read through the the chapter 5, Romans chapter 5. It kicks off the very first verse in which Paul talks about in Romans chapter 5, says that through Christ you have been justified. You've been justified so that you can live a peaceable relationship with God. Christ did that. Christ prevented you not just from going to hell, church, because that's the typical answer, right? What were you saved from? Hell. I was saved from hell. Everyone says they were saved from hell, but guess what? One thing that people miss is the fact that you were also rescued from the wrath of God. You were also rescued from the wrath of God. And so through Christ, you've been justified so you can live peaceably with God. Peaceably with God. Read it. Don't do anything else. You can eat and go to the bathroom, but read Romans chapter (laughs) 5. Jesus was a willing and worthy sacrifice for us, church. And it was only Jesus who met the qualifications to be our Redeemer. It was only Jesus who met the qualifications to be our Redeemer. The story of Ruth is a story about real life. It's a story about real people. It's a story about real pain and real problems. But it's also a story about real redemption. Real redemption. Redemption is God giving us a place to start over. God giving us a place to start over. And, and, and we see all throughout the New, uh, the New Testament, like pockets of places where it says that we were filled with the fullness of Christ. Filled with the fullness of Christ. That comes when we're redeemed. So now I want you to pause right here and I need you to jump with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. Gold Star students, you're already there. I want to read to us in Ephesians chapter 3 for just a moment here. Ephesians chapter 3, just a moment here. Uh, We're going to start in verse number 14 of Ephesians chapter 3. I want us to hear what Paul wrote here. This is a prayer. This is a prayer from Paul. And he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, 
may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power that's at work where, church? Where is it? It's right there in your Bibles. The power that is where? In us. The power that is in us. And then the last verse, it says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I want us to stop right here. You don't have to hold your place here. I'm going to explain what this means. When we are, when we are redeemed, when we're given a place to start over, we're filled with the fullness of Christ. We're filled with the fullness of Christ. Now, admittedly, uh, that phrase is a little bit perplexing. Um, if I could just be honest, anybody else in the same boat, like you hear that phrase, you've probably even read it any length of time in church, and you're like, I don't have any idea what that means, right? So the fullness of Christ. We're introduced to that phrase in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul says, and God appointed Christ to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body. And it says the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We might paraphrase this by saying that Christ identifies with the church so that he can fill it completely. Are you guys tracking with me? Nod your heads if you're tracking with me. All right, good. Because I don't want you to miss, this is important for your life as a believer. It's important for you to understand this. It means that Christ is present throughout the church in all of his people at all times. That means he's present. So the fullness of Christ is the church fully saturated in who Christ is, fully relating to Christ, and then fully embodying his presence out into the world. Are you guys still tracking with me? I know that was a mouthful. You guys still tracking? Right? So the fullness of Christ is the church actually being what God intended the church to be. I'm going to say it again. The fullness of Christ is the church being the, the, the exact intent, fulfilling the intent of what God called us to be. This kind of church is one that both proclaims and embodies the gospel. It's this church that demonstrates the unity that Christ brought to us through the cross. It's this church that demonstrates to us what it means to reach out to people and to be salt and light in the world as we're commanded and called to do. It is this church that doesn't just talk about Jesus. It's the church that will be Jesus in every single aspect of their life. Every moment of their life is so encapsulated by who Christ is that everything that comes out of us oozes Jesus. It oozes Jesus. Boaz here in this story was a perfect picture of Christ he was the example given to us of someone who embodied what it meant to have or be filled with the fullness of Christ. But as this book comes to a close, there are a few more precious truths that I want us to, to take, not forget, but also be reminded of from the last eight weeks. So if you would, go back with me to the book of Ruth, uh, chapter 4. We're going to pick up 
in verse number 14. Ruth chapter 4, verse number 14. And it says, Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. They named him Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the grandfather of David. And it says in verse number 18, now these are the generations of Perez. And it goes on to list off all the way through the next several generations there to to finish out this book. And this here is God's word for us today. Let's pray. God, we we come to you uh, in this place right now, Lord, and we ask of you to help us be reminded of truth in this place. Help us to see the things that we need to see. Help us to have ears that would hear and a heart that would be open uh, to receive, moldable and pliable. Help us to to see that we need to be a church that is encapsulated by you, a church that... uh, that takes your name out into our workplaces and our communities, uh, into our families. God, help us to be uh, people that are reminded of your faithfulness. And in turn, we would take that and show others love and grace and peace and and joy in our lives because we are full uh, with you. I just ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. The book begins here with a funeral and a famine and it ends with fullness and new life. It, it, is, it is hard to sit here and, and try to imagine how Ruth must have felt as she was holding this little baby after years of barrenness. She's almost forgotten about it as she holds a bundle of joy. I remember the very first time uh, that I held uh, Israel. I remember each child... Uh, and leading up to the delivery of those children was vastly different. But Israel's was something very special, um, but yet scary at the same time. And so um, I remember, um, if you guys remember from uh, sharing our testimony back in March or so, uh, my wife and I talked about um, when we lost our first child. I remember finding out Bree was pregnant. Um, with our first child and and I remember uh, starting to walk through the the thought process of being a dad Um, I was so scared Um, anybody else first time when you're a first-time parent you're like what am I supposed to do Um, they said read these books and those books did not tell you anything at all Um, and I remember I remember when we we got to the stage where I got a telephone call my wife's like you need to you need to come home from work you need to take me to the hospital I remember walking through all of these things in my head and trying to process what is this going to be like for us to go to the hospital and for the doctor to look us in the eyes saying you're having a a miscarriage and there's nothing that we can do about it. Um, We were having a little boy uh, that we were going to name after me. Um, And um, I remember when my wife did miscarry and I remember burying our first child thinking to myself, this is my son. Um, I remember being angry with God. I remember thinking all of these things. So when when Bree gets pregnant again uh, about a year or so later, um, all of those thoughts came back to my head. What if we get almost 20 weeks again and she she loses another child? What, 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 What if? 
I remember thinking to myself, I want to be able to hold my child. I want to be able to embrace my child. I want to be able to talk to my child. And, and God blessed us with four beautiful children that came after hurt and pain. But I remember uh, Israel c- coming down to the, the, the wire. And I remember we went to the hospital, and my parents came with us the night. Uh, they started prepping Brie um, for, for being induced the following morning. And she went into labor early, early, early in, in the morning. Um, and it was kind of shock and sudden that she went into labor while we were in the hospital getting prepped for her to be induced. And um, she starts pushing. And she, I remember being in the room, my mom was in the room with us. And I remember we were, we were standing there um, and I kept having all of these thoughts. And I'm watching the heart monitor on the screen. And his heart, when, his heart rate when she first started was about 148. And then every time she would push, it would drop to 100. And then it would go back up, and then it would drop to 100, and then it would go back up. And we got to the point where his heart rate did not go back up. And it just dropped to 100. And then it dropped to 72. And then it dropped to 60. And then it dropped to 54. And then it dropped to 40, and then it dropped to 32. And I was like, God, you please do not do this. I'm thinking to myself, do not take another child away from me. I want to be able to hold him. I want to be able to embrace him. I want to be able to talk with him. I want to watch him grow up. I want to see the godly man that you're going to make him into. And I remember having these thoughts. I've already lost. I already lost one. They rush us in for an emergency C-section. He comes out and he doesn't cry. His lifeless body laid on the table before me and they wouldn't let me get beyond the curtain. I remember 18 or 20 different people coming into the the OR. It was like wall to wall with people. The moment that I heard his cry, I forgot every bit of pain that I had endured prior. Every single piece. Why? New life. New life. God gave new life. That, as I read this passage of scripture, I think... Naomi had, or or Ruth had to have forgotten because she was looking at a little bundle of joy. She was holding a baby. Moms, do you remember the first time, dads, do you remember the first time you heard your child make sound outside of the womb? Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember what you thought about? Church, I, I believe it needs to be a reminder to us that our life of endless misery was forever altered by God's gift of joy for us. It was altered by God's gift of joy. The reality is is that this baby brought happiness and life back into the lives of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. And that's the point, right? Christ came to give us life. He even said it in John 10.10. What did he say? But the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. He he was coming to say, I want to come and fulfill your life. I want you to do the things that I've called you to do. And we look here in this passage of scripture at the last few lines. And we remember that God writes the last chapter of every person's life. Church, the first thing I want us to see this morning is that our life has eternal meaning. Our life has eternal meaning. A truth that seems so foundational and so basic, but a truth that we should often remind ourselves of. Often. 
One of the issues that we face on a daily basis is the challenge of having an eternal perspective. To think about life through the lens of eternity. Does anyone else struggle with that? Because I know I do. I struggle with looking at life every moment of my day through the lens of eternity. You often see life boiled down to a series of what ifs. What if this happens? What if this doesn't happen? What if? What if? The reality here, though, is that we all face a staggering array of what ifs. Every person. Some are minor issues, while, while others are completely life-altering. The repercussions that come with them. What if my child dies? What if I get cancer? What if my spouse leaves me? Church, I don't mean to be morbid here, but the uncomfortable truth is, is that any of those things could happen. Any of those things could happen to you. No one is free in this life of tragedy or pain. There are no guarantees in the Christian life to have it easy for any of us, ever. But this life should not be a matter of what ifs. But this life should be a matter of even if. Even if. Those two simple words take the fear out of life. Replacing what if with even if is one of the most liberating exchanges that we could ever make in our lives. Even if. There's a beautiful song that was written that said, um, now the, the lyrics have just slipped my memory. Um, but the song goes on to say, you know, it's easy to sing when there's nothing to bring me down. But what would I say if I was held to the flame like I am right now? I know you're able and I know you can. Save through the fire with your mighty hand. But even if you don't, my hope is in you alone. And I know the sorrow and I know the hurt. And it would all go away if you just say the words. But even if you don't, my hope is in you alone. Why? Because you're faithful and you're good all my days. And I'll be able to sing it as well with my soul. I believe V.R. Reisner said it right when he said that we trade our irrational fears of an uncertain future for the loving assurance of an unchanging God. We see that even if the worst happens, God will carry us. He will still be good in the pain. God will never leave us. We are told that in Scripture. Our life is not a birth date and a death date. Our life is about a part of being the plans of the loving God. I'm going to say it again, church, because I think you guys missed it. It would have been the perfect spot for an amen. 
Your life is not a birth date and a death date. It's about being a part of the plans of a loving God. That's what your life is about, church. Don't forget it. Don't walk away. God's goal is not um, not changed. And his aim is not to fulfill our goals as humans, but it is to accomplish his purpose in and through our lives. So no matter what comes our way, we as believers should rest and rejoice in the fact that we're a part of God's eternal plan and purpose, even in the midst of our pain and problems. Even in the midst. Ruth and Naomi could have no idea what God was going to do in and through their lives. They would have had no way of knowing, no idea that the baby that Ruth was to have was going to be in the bloodline of the Messiah, the one who would bring new life, the one who would come to save. How could they know? But it begs the question, how can we know all that God is going to do through us? How can we know? Oftentimes we're so wrapped up in ourselves that we fail to focus on the eternal aspects of our life and the impact that can be made for all eternity. We're totally, many times, many times we are totally unaware of all that God is doing and going to do as a result of his ultimate plan. We forget Do you know that there are no insignificant people in the story of God's grace and redemption? There are no insignificant people. Your situation and your circumstances may be saying something else, but change your perspective by looking at his word and focusing on God's character. So the second thing I want us to see is that God has blessed us to be a blessing. God has blessed us to be a blessing. You notice the words, I want to I go back to verse number 15. Actually, go back to verse 14. 14, and it starts off by saying, And the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel, and he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and began to nurse him, or became his nurse. Verse 17, And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the grandfather of David. This baby was a blessing to a family and a blessing to the future. You, you know, anytime you hold a little baby, you're holding a little piece of the future, right? And anytime you hold a child, you're holding a piece of the future. This little baby here in the story was called a restorer and a sustainer. And any grandparent, grandparents in this room, raise your hands. Great. Any grandparent will tell you that grandkids make you feel young again, or they just make you really frustrated and angry, or both. But they make you feel young again. The birth of Obed here was not the end, but the beginning of a new chapter of hope. Do you know that Obed's name means servant of God? Obed's name means servant of God, and he must have had some serious influence on his grandson David, because when you trace David's life, one of the things that you find is that David was always serving. 
David was always serving. From a shepherd and tending to sheep in the field to his hand in a sling with a smooth stone or from his harp and poetry for the king to his leadership in a kingdom, David was a servant just like his grandfather. Do you know, um, odd fact I'm going to share with you, um, just so that you can win um, a, a question in Bible Trivial Pursuit. There are over 60 references in Scripture that refer to David as a servant. 60 references to David as a servant. And then you get to the New Testament. And Acts 13 is going to come to the screen. I want you to follow along. And it says, And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony. And he said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed has God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Showing the lineage that would come through David, but a man who was labeled a man after God's own heart. Church, I just want to chase a little bit of a rabbit trail here for a moment. Uh, There are many things about David's life that people forget or assume that they know. Do you know that David was an adulterer? David was a murderer. David was a bad father. I'm talking bad father. He knew things about his children and he did not prevent them. David did tons of things over and over and over in his life that made him seem like an awful guy throughout scripture. But there was something very special about David. And not the fact that he was a servant. There was something special about David. The fact that he was a great repenter. David understood what it meant to have a broken relationship with God. And every time David did something wrong, he begged of God, restore yourself to me. He even pleaded with God, don't remove your spirit from me. Because he saw it with Saul and he didn't want it. So church, please know that if you're, if you're going through something, if your lifestyle cho- choices right now do not align with Scripture, God can still use you. God can still clean you up. God can still change you. He did it with David. He did it with me. He did it with Paul in the Bible. He did it with my spouse. I've seen it with my parents. God can change people. God can make people different. I've seen it with one of my siblings. People who were far from God or were living different to the way God wanted them to live. And God radically changed those people. Church, don't don't sit in here and negate the fact that God can change people. He is an unchanging God. But he's in the business of changing lives. Someone said it to me this way several years ago. And he said the greatest thing that God did for David was not his victory over his enemies or the wealth of building his temple, but allowing him to be in the lineage of the Messiah. What we know is that our salvation is a blessing and our life has been restored and sustained through Christ. Our lineage on this earth may not be very impressive, but we can leave a legacy of faithfulness. We should be asking ourselves this question as we close the series out today. 
Is my life a blessing to other people? Is my life a blessing to other people? Am I going to leave behind a legacy of faithfulness and fruitfulness? There are six lessons that I want us to take home as we close and and as I invite the worship team to come back up here in just a moment. I want us to take these things to heart. I want us to read them. I want us to reread them. I want them to be saturating our thoughts about this passage of Scripture. The first one is how you start does not determine how you finish. How you start does not determine how you finish. Second one, God is always working for our good and His glory. God is always working for our good and His glory. One of the most crucial or important ones is this next one, that we have a faithful Redeemer. We have a faithful Redeemer. The fourth one, the Lord of the harvest will fill your life with blessing. Will fill your life with blessing. The joy of our salvation sustains us and reminds us that a better day is coming. That a better day is coming. And last, but certainly not least, one day our life on this earth will end. But that will only be the beginning to a new life that we have in eternity. To a new life that we have in in eternity. I'm going to ask the worship team to come at this time. I'm going to ask you church if you would please stand with us this morning. I want for for us to sing this song again. Highlands. A song that um, hopefully will mean something different to you now. A song that reminds us of truth about who God is. A song that tells us that we have a faithful Redeemer. A song that says no matter where we find ourselves in this life, God is still there. God is still the same God has not changed. Sorry, my iPad shut off or else I would have been ready already.